and I take a deep breath. And as I've done many times in the past, when you have a fall, I tried to get up. So I tricked my body forward to try to get up, so I stand up so I can go watch it and deal with my angry coach. But nothing moved. Winded still, I took a deep breath and tried again. So I jerked myself and what I thought was jerking myself to stand up. So I thought I was just very winded from like having whiplash or something and nothing moved. That's when my coach yelled and said, Taylor, are you okay? Get up. And I just kind of whispered back and said, I can't get up. And then I said it again, I can't get up. I can't get up. I can't get up. I can't get up. And he's like, what do you mean you can't get up? I'm like, my body is not moving. I just felt this great sense of tiredness hit me. It was almost, at the time, it felt like I was just sleeping. But what I didn't know was that I was very close to dying. It was this tiredness feeling that I just needed to close my eyes. And every single time I would go to close my eyes and just be at peace, the paramedics would like yell at me and say, Taylor, please don't go to sleep. Please just stay awake. And I couldn't understand why. I'm like, why can't I just take a nap? Like you heard that I just fell. I've been training. I'm very tired. Let me sleep. And all this chaos was going on in an ambulance with the sirens. I'm like, why are there sirens? I swear this isn't that bad. My body's just stunned. I'm not paralyzed. Like I'm fine. But again, after each time of me feeling like I needed to sleep, they became more and more concerned. And again, the panic started to set in. You're listening to the Talking 20 podcast. This podcast is for you if you're in your 20s and you're thinking, what the hell am I doing? We've all been there and we want to talk about it. We're your hosts, Bridget O'Rourke and Mary Margaret Courtney, and we sit down with fellow millennials to chat about their journey and hear what they've learned along the way. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Talking 20 Podcast. Today we're chatting with someone that's been on my radar since the idea for this podcast was just a tiny little nugget in my brain. She's someone who has a story of motivation and perseverance that everybody should hear, and she's by far one of the most inspiring women I know, introducing Taylor Lindsay Noel. Tay welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm so excited to be on the show. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. So Taylor is, you're 28, right Taylor? Uh, in like two weeks, yeah. In two weeks. So Taylor is almost 28, <laughs> an almost 28-year-old woman from Toronto, Ontario, with a crazy life story, practicing as a gymnast from age 4 to 14. Is that correct? 4 to 14? Yep. Yep. Uh, She suffered a life-changing accident when she was training for the 2012 Olympics back in 2008. Now a quadriplegic, Taylor has had to completely change her life path at the young age of 14, but through her struggles, she has come out on the other side as a motivational speaker, obviously, a podcast host and entrepreneur building a highly successful tea company called Cup of Tay. Now, of course, we want to hear about Taylor's accident because it is a hugely defining part of her life. We will talk about tragedy and get into some of Taylor's wisdom about pivoting and adapting, but this won't be our focus today. 
If you want to hear more about the specifics of Taylor's story, you can check out our pre-episode chat for this episode where Mary and I talk more in depth about Taylor's story. And we highly recommend listening to Taylor's podcast called Tea Time with Tay, specifically episode one and two to hear the in-depth story of the tragic day that she suffered her spinal cord injury and the following days, months, years of her life. We will link those episodes in the show notes. Taylor's also a guest on numerous podcasts where she talks openly and vulnerably about her accident and her life, which is why today we want to take a different angle and talk to Taylor about how she's approached her 20s and all of the crazy struggles that come along with it with the added barrier of being in a wheelchair. So join us today as we sit down with this superhuman and shoot the shit about money, relationships, health and fitness, planning motherhood, businesses, and so much more because we've got a lot of questions for you, Taylor. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, uh, man, welcome to the show. How are you, Tay-Tay? I'm so good. I'm like, I haven't seen you in person in years, and I'm just like, oh, why? Because, like, I absolutely adore you. <laughs> I and know. I love you. And I'm so excited to be on the show. And, yeah, like you said, shoot the shit. Let's go. Yeah, I'm super excited that you're here. So, Taylor, we met in first year university, Frosh Week for RTA, Radio Intelligent Arts at Ryerson University. I think we were in the same Frosh group, weren't we? We definitely were. It was meant to be. It definitely was meant to be. It was meant to be. With Will Reed, our Frosh daddy, who, you know, got us through everything. (laughs) That was was such a fun week. I don't remember much of it. What is a Frosh daddy? (laughs) Our Frosh leader. We, yeah, he was our fresh leader, but he just, like, he just exuded everything I needed to start my university career. Like, he just was so energetic. His, our group was themed after, like, reality shows, and I just feel like I was placed in the proper group. And he introduced himself as our frosh daddy, so we are like, all right, let it be. He's father figure. There he is. <laughs> the father figure. That's yeah. amazing. It was awesome. And then from there, you know, we sat in class together a lot. We always teamed up on projects when we could. Do you, do you remember uh, filming? What what was our children's show called that we filmed in your kitchen? Oh, my God. Do you remember? Oh, it'll come it's to be. Cooking with Chef Shushu or something like that. It was it, like- um, cooking with Chef Shushu. <laughs> I don't think that's what it was called, but it was something like that. Maybe it was. Anyway, it was with your uh, godson in it. He was like the, the main character in our children's show that we did for children's media um how old is he now because he was like three he's gonna be nine wow that's crazy yeah that's absolutely insane and like still adorable thriving like he's doing so well yeah oh that's so good and so we met in uh 2012 which was actually the year that you were supposed to be going to the olympics i realized today i was like whoa that's crazy so um for our listeners can you give a brief backstory of your accident because like we said leading up to the release we're gonna get more in depth about your accident we're gonna we always record a pre-episode chat the week before we release it where mary and i will kind of talk about it a little bit more um and we actually made the conscious decision that mary has not listened to any of the podcasts that you've been on all she okay. knows is what I've told her, which has been very little. So she's coming into this with the, you know, the view of the listeners. Uh, so she'll need to, she'll need a bit of a background as well. So if you could get into that a bit to start off, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. So, well, as you a little bit know, I was formerly like a Canadian national gymnast. I started training when I was at four, turning five. And very quickly, I realized and my coaches realized that I definitely had knack for it by like age 11 slash 12 I was on the Canadian national team which meant I got to travel the world and compete for Canada um, and I was a very bright hopeful for the 2012 Olympics but when I was 14 I went to a regular day of training 
And my coach, who had been my coach for many years, and speaking of father figures, was like a father figure to me, um, came up to me out of the blue and was like, I want you to try something called a rigby double front off bars. And similar to most people who listen to this, they're going to be like, what? What is that? <laughs> exactly. My question. That sounds wild. But the difference is I was an athlete in the sport for nine slash ten years, and I've seen everything. And I immediately expressed my concerns, thought he was joking. But over the course of an hour, he broke me down, coerced me to do it, even though I explained I was scared, I didn't want to do it. He refused to spot me. He gaslit what I know to be gaslighting now. Like He kept telling me that people do it all the time around the world. I just hadn't seen it. Back then, YouTube isn't what it is now. So I was really limited in my options and decided to believe him when he said that my fear was clouding my judgment and to trust him. And so I decided to trust him. Um, being 14, and unfortunately, the second time I tried the skill, I landed headfirst, um, broke my neck, and severed my spinal cord, which instantly left me paralyzed from um, the chest down. So now I am a quadriplegic, which means I have partial or full paralysis in all four of my major limbs. So you can see me moving my hands, but I actually can't physically move my fingers. Um, so that's why I still have paralysis in my upper body. And my life has gone in a very different direction than I thought it would when I was 14 years old. Um, but, you know, I'm almost 28 and I'm here and I'm alive and I like to think that I'm thriving. So we just, you know, that's a little bit of the backstory. And I'm wow. sure we'll get into Such a crazy more. story. Yeah, yeah no kidding. Oh, and to make the point that the skill actually hasn't been completed by anyone in the world ever, not even Simone Biles. To this day. What? So, yeah, it's he completely lied about the whole situation. Which is like, yeah. I'm learning more about the gymnastic world and seems very on brand for a, co a male gymnastics coach without getting too crazy down that rabbit hole. Um, yes. Have you like watched any of those documentaries? Can you relate to some of those stories being like, yeah, like. Yeah, funny. You know, it's so funny. It's crazy the timing of this episode because so many of those things bring back so many memories from like my gym days. Like so many things that I even to this day don't talk about with like anyone. I remember I very briefly the other day when so much of all of this was being brought to light, had a conversation with my mom. So I started, I don't even know why I'm talking about this, it's crazy. But I started like having like mini like panic attacks um, the last couple months. And it's because watching so much of the stuff about like Larry Nazar and just gymnastics in general and how um, neglected so many of us athletes are, it brought up so many things from my childhood um, that kind of got swept under the rug, not necessarily maybe going to go into that today. But um, yeah, it's crazy. It's relatable. It's scary. But I'm happy that we're finally in a time when these stories are brought to light, and I actually am aware of a massive investigation that's actually happening right now in Canada. So look out for that in probably yeah. the winter. But yeah, can you guys happening. tell? Because I I don't know any of this, and I'm yeah, sure some yeah, people listening yeah. also might not. Can you guys tell us what's going on? So there is a um, so the the national sports doctor in America named Larry Nazar was 
I think like a year ago, arrested and sentenced to like a hundred and something life sentences uh, because he has, he physically assaulted over 180 young gymnasts um, and athletes throughout his whole time. And some of them, most notably being like Simone Biles, who was like the Olympic gymnast, um, a bunch of other Olympic gymnasts, and then like over a hundred and something um, other athletes in the course of his like 25 years um, being a doctor. So it wasn't like a little incident. Like he has done this hundreds of times to hundreds of athletes. And um, yeah, Gymnastics uh, USA had been aware of it, um, kind of aware of it and had done nothing to stop the abuse. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the girls were like, yeah, it's enough. We're going to talk about it and make it a thing. And there's a documentary that came out, which I couldn't, I have not been able to watch, um, cause it's just really, really triggering, but it's called Athlete A on Netflix. I know so many of my friends who are gymnasts who have watched it. Um, it brings a really good spotlight for it. So if you're ever looking to like know more about the entire case, Larry Nazar, the whole situation, um athlete a on netflix free plug for you it's honestly such a powerful documentary to watch and for someone who wasn't in the industry or like any oh you've seen it mary yeah oh yeah watched it back i probably when it immediately came out a lot of like gymnastics cheerleading stuff all started to come online and i think that's probably uh, a product of a lot of these investigations and people feeling comfortable and confident to come forward. And what's insane is like, when we talk about sexual assault and women telling, and even Me Too movement, it can get so hairy, but you see these stories Mm -hmm. and you're like, it's black and white. Like it's a young, it's hundreds of young females in the world of gymnastics. So if you look, and like cheerleading too, right? You look how like um, intimate it can get and how, if you're an 11 year old girl and you're doing a certain type of lift where people are holding you in certain positions, you just get really used to like people going over the boundaries that like Bridget and I, who didn't grow up doing gymnastics, we didn't have that. We were taught our boundaries and that was it. There was never ever a place in our life where that was excused. Whereas if you're a gymnast or in that instance that I, other one I was watching with the cheerleaders is those lines get blurred because it's part of the training. It's part of what you're doing it's insane to watch it's insane to understand and for you like is that stuff that you've dealt with in the past or is this just like a new journey for you it's starting to come up where you're realizing it affected you more yeah it's definitely it's definitely something I probably need to go to therapy for which will be fun and great um but (laughs) it's one of those it's one of those things where you're just like when you look back when as an adult as certain things that happen in your childhood and I'm like hmm, if this was happening to me right now, would I be making a phone call to the police? And the answer would be yes. And then I'm like, ooh, that's problematic. But, like, I I totally understand what happens when you're, like, you're young. Like you said, those lines get blurred because you – it's easy. Like, if you're somebody spotting you, then accidentally, like, you might tap someone's butt. Okay, but that happens all the time. But then there's this point in time where those lines – get crossed inappropriately beyond which now as an adult I understand to not be okay but at the time I'm like am I being sensitive or is this wrong and you see it also play out in the terms of like me even feeling comfortable to assert myself because like you said I wasn't didn't feel comfortable to 
which I, I, I tried as much as I could for an hour, but I was scared because I knew that if I spoke up too much, I would get sent to, um, to the, sent to the, um, back to the bleachers or be suspended for a couple of days. I've been suspended before when I didn't show up one day after training because I was exhausted and um, I knew I would hurt myself if I came exhausted. So I, it, this pattern of behavior in it, what it is, is the culture of gymnastics um, needs to shift and the safety of the athletes needs to be taken more into account because otherwise it's very easy for all of this stuff to happen. And, it, and I don't want it to people to not think it doesn't happen here because it happens here in Canada all the time and we're going to see and see it play out on TV in the fall. Um, I can't say very much more about it, but it's going to play out on TV very shortly. So you'll see a lot more of that happening. That's I'm, crazy. I'm really interested to learn more. Yeah. yeah. Look out for it. Yeah. So you said that, you know, they they might send you back to the bleachers, they, you might be mm-hmm. kicked out, you might be suspended, and you don't want to talk back because it's an authority figure. How do you feel mm-hmm. now? Uh, I guess you're an adult now, there aren't many authority figures in your life, but did you find that when you were growing up, you had kind of, there was, a, there was something there where, you know, you were scared of them, or did you feel more empowered after this? Oh, no, I was terrified. So during the whole experience of being an athlete, I was absolutely terrified. We would joke all the time, like, you would see us when we got on the bus leaving school to go back to gym. Like all of us would just like go so quiet because we're like, "Oh my god, That's what are we awful. gonna face today?" Oh no, we used to like huddle together and be like, "It's gonna be okay. Like we're gonna get through training today without crying." And like now, back then, I'm like, "Oh, that's normal because everyone did it." But when I talk to people about that, they're like, "You cried every day," and I'm like, "Yeah." Aww. So what, what in it, what keeps you in it? Is it like when you do the, I don't know the lingo, the triple axle backflip upside down thingy, you land <laughs> it. You mixed uh, skating and gymnastics and I love it. That's all my axle. I was like, I think that's ice. But anyway, when you do like a really cool move you've been working on for months or years. Oh, spin a roo. in the air and you land it. Is it like that adrenaline, that moment, the support of the other girls? Like what's the thing that, that makes you wake up in the morning and go, I'm putting on the outfit and I'm doing the thing? Because to me, I'd be like, I'm out of here. You're an asshole. Yeah. And me now, 100%. Like, if I don't if I don't want to do anything, I'm not doing nothing. Like, there's <laughs> no way you're going to need to do anything. But I think what it is, I don't mean to compare it to a cult, but it kind of is like cult mentality when you are indoctrinated into something for so long and from so young. Like, I started when I was, like, five. So at that age, you're shaping and molding. And for me, I never knew what, quote, unquote, normal was. Like, even when I was in... My middle school was located inside of, so I went to Seneca, Sports Seneca, which was located inside of Seneca College. So you have to imagine my middle school from grades three to eight in total had no more than 50 kids at any one time from grade three to grade eight. My grade eight graduating class was three people. So I didn't go to a normal middle school at all. And so when you're ingrained growing up with athletes so closely with different people who were just athletes and we only had two sports either three rhythmic gymnastics artistic gymnastics or skating and you grow up with 50 people when you think about leaving you're like how am I who am I going to be friends with like all of my friends are here I'm going to leave a school and go be normal like what does that mean like I was so used to like working hard achieving goals winning medals 
and it's and it was fun. Like there were there was definitely I think up until like age twelve it was fun. But when I started being on the national team and traveling internationally and then people start talking about you becoming an Olympian and the pressure that comes along with it. And for me, my main goal was to get into all of our top athletes got into UCLA and got a four year scholarship. So I'm like coming from a single mom background, I'm like, I could get my school paid for go to LA, live in LA and go to school. And all I had to do is train and they're going to pay for everything. Like all I have to do is stick it out until I'm 22. And then if I'm an Olympian, I can use that to project me into whatever career I want. So there were so many things that were benefits on top of that, having your entire support system, your community, your friends in one place. You're like, you're in it. And no one yeah. else leaves. So if no one else is leaving, you're like, am I going to that bitch to <laughs> leave? Like, like one or two girls a year would leave. And we're just like, what happened to them? Like, <laughs> You've seen it from that side of being the person who saw other people leave. What was that like? How did you feel when they left? Oh, my God. It's god awful slash jealous. I'm like, so you're telling me that you're just going to go to school? Like, I would literally, as a child, look at people who just went to school and they would talk. Like, I'd have a couple of cousins, and I'm like, so you're telling me that you go to school <laughs> and then you go home? Make it make sense to me. Like, you just, all you have yeah. to do today is homework? Like, I have to go, I get up, I have to be in the gym at 7, I leave at 10.30, I go to school from 10 45 to 320 and then I'm back in the gym from four to six five days a week you're telling me you go to school and you go home and you complain and then on top of that I also had like a Caribbean mom so I also did piano so I had to do an hour of that every single day so I just could not relate and so I just I think I was just in it for so long and I don't get me wrong like it's a beautiful sport and there's so many pluses but towards the end it became very pressure filled and for the last like two and a half slash three years of my gym career I cried almost every day yeah yeah they're still like the closest people to me are the people who knew me like before my accident we're still like we're still really close friends and um I think it's kind of like trauma bonding it's really horrible but like also I think it's one of those things like when we get together and we talk it's like there's just no one who can relate like unless you've like Mm -hmm. really been in the thick of it like it's I think it, it it made it at first, going into my adulthood, really hard into, like, my 20s, speaking of, like, really hard to relate to certain people. And it got so I was so scared to start university because I'm just, like, nobody knows anything. Like, I could just, if I wanted to, start anew. But, like, who am I separate from my identity as, like, a former athlete or, like, an athlete? Oh, and there's so much to get in about that with your accident, like coming through the obvious things of learning what a new life is going to be like, finding people you can relate to. Like it, it was overwhelming hearing your story and thinking about like all the unknowns that I don't know, having not been through it. So I'm like, okay, you're young and you go through all these things and you were a gymnast where that's your identity where you had this promising career where you had all, so you're re-identifying that. And then you have like a court case you go through because of the incident, which like people say, like going through a court case like that, that journey changes you. I was going to say, yeah, you had to grow up super fast because also you were saying that, you know, you were looking at 
your 20s, when you were, what, 12, 13, you were like, okay, what does the rest of my life look like after I go to these Olympics? It makes sense that you had to have all of those close friends who related to you, because if you were to go to public school at that time, we're all thinking about, you know, what we're eating for dinner, which is what I'm always thinking about. So Bridget's You know, like... always thinking about what I'm eating for dinner. But, like, we didn't have those struggles. I didn't start thinking about university until I had to apply to university. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. I had my whole, like, I probably, like, 11. I had my whole life mapped out. I'm like, okay, make the national team, go to the 2012 Olympics, maybe go to the 2016 Olympics if my body is still good. Otherwise, I'll be in university. I'll be at UCLA. Like, I knew specifically, like, I would be going to UCLA. because. What do you mean with- if your body is still good? So if, like, I didn't have any major injuries, um, that would prevent me from being able to, like, still compete at that high level. So when you go to university for gymnastics, it definitely the level of um, skill set, you can go back a step, if that makes sense. So if you imagine that there's, like, mm-hmm. junior, senior, you're competing at a senior level when you're getting ready to go to the Olympics. But when you go to UCLA, like, gymnastics and university, you can, like, downgrade to a junior and that's acceptable because, like, our bodies are getting older. Most gymnasts tap out before 20. So for me to be about 20, considering a 2016 Olympics, like, I'm already considered what they call, like, geriatric. Yeah. What? <laughs> that's crazy. I know. That's why, like, people like Simone Biles, who's, like, 24, where, like, she calls herself a grandma because it's not very well seen. Like, most athletes when they win their first olympics are 16 and typically don't do it again so um your body just ages so quickly and like all my friends have like arthritis and we're just falling apart at the seams it's it's really crazy but i also i knew it like i knew that like that's why you i think that's why you work and you hustle so hard because the time frame for a gymnast is so short so you're like you go you get in you do your olympics live life after and you live life after. I'm like, I have, in my head, I know it sounds crazy, but in my head I was like, all I have to do is plan till like 21 and then I could literally do whatever the hell I wanted to for the rest of my life. And when you see it that way, yeah, you're, set. You're, you're like, okay. like, And for me, it, it, it was kind of nice because I'm like, I don't really have to worry about going to high school and be like, what am I going to do? Like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to probably become a sports doctor or just live off of being an athlete for the rest of my life. And life was good. Like, I couldn't really understand when people were like, oh, my God, I don't know what to apply to a school. I'm like, why? <laughs> That's crazy. So why don't you just come jump up uh, on the bar, spin around a few times, flippity floopity, land on your toes and you're fine. Exactly. <laughs> you got yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, so obviously you had to pivot in a huge yeah. way. I think it was the Afterglow podcast I was listening that you were on. They said you're the... OG pivoter I was like she is she is the OG pivoter so what did school look like for you obviously you were in the hospital for what um 18 a year 18 months I was yeah I was there for 19 months it was like crazy 19 months two years almost that's crazy so you come out you're 16 yeah what happens then did you go back to like school yeah so when when you leave the middle school section of my gym you do go to a regular high school, but we are part of something called the Academic Program for Gifted Athletes. So I had one full year of being in high school, but also having accommodations still. So it wasn't like fully normal high school, but I still had major accommodations. So I'd be like, I'm gone for three weeks. Sorry, teachers. Like, 
do my test when I get home, like figure it out. I'm kind of thing. But when I went, I injured myself going into my grade 10 year. So while I was in rehab, they, I did about three courses. They had a school there. So I did like one course, kind of like a semester type of thing um, while I was in rehab. And then I, yeah, I transferred back to my old high school. So I went from being like a jock to this girl in a wheelchair and like, you have to imagine like high school, you want to look cute. You want to be here. Here I am like with my sling under my chair, like a wheelchair, the school that wasn't fully adapted for me. Everyone being like, what the hell happened to this girl? She used to be an athlete. And then I came back in a time when there were so many misconceptions about what happened to me because when I was in grade nine, I always, my mom, she's like, again, a Jamaican mom. So if we had, like, three different juices left over, she would just put them all together in, in one in a juice bottle and be like, drink it. And so when people would be like, what are you always drinking? I'm like, I don't know. My mom concocts it for me. And someone one day joked that, like, I was taking some kind of performance enhancement drug. And so when I came back to school, people were like, oh, and she was in rehab? Like, she went to rehab because she had a drug problem. Oh my god, kids are so weird. So dumb. And I'm like, (laughs) they literally held an assembly (laughs) to explain what had happened to me and how the school was. Oh my god. It was like crazy. Like you were, like, wait, 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 wait. wait. They hold the assembly once you were back in school? Yeah. Did you have to Mm -hmm. be there for that? Oh, I was there. I was like in the front row and they're just like, we really need, so they brought like my whole, our whole grade and they're like, we really need to rally around Taylor and just support our fellow like student Phoenix coming back like she arose because we were the Phoenix and, like she rose from the ashes and now she's oh my god back. that's so corny that was like cringy <laughs> did you know that this was gonna happen or were you just like thrown into this situation you're like I don't want to be here <laughs> they told me like the day of I was like bro like this is can y'all send her like a memo like yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god. How many kids were in your school? Like how big was that assembly? I had a no- I had a normal school. So, I think there was like 1500 kids over the fourth <laughs> grade, so maybe like whatever couple hundred. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But, you know, a, there was a lot of people who did understand, so I think it just was one of those clean slate like this is Taylor now. We're here to support you. And my school was extremely supportive. So I can't really say too much. Like, I ended up being, like, high school student council president by my last year. So, like, I was really involved. Yeah, I got really involved. You come back to school, are you, like, I would just imagine that you'd be like, screw this. I don't want to be here. Were you able to still, like, connect with your gymnast friends and find other friends? And you got a supportive school, but what's your mental health like at that point? My mental health actually, so my mental health was interesting because I called myself like a functioning depressed person where I definitely was going through depression, but on the outside, no one would know. But then like I would find myself coming home and like going in my elevator and going down to the basement and just screen crying. So I guess like that's not normal, but again, it's one of those things I think I have. No, Taylor, it's not. I have a really bad history of like delayed acknowledgement of what's going on in my life. And I, yeah, I definitely went through a depressive state in the summer after I came back. I had an almost, had an almost oopsie moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it just was, but it was one of those things where like it took one really bad almost incident for me to completely change my life. And then I was just fine. And I know that's not the healthy way to handle situations at all, but um, that's just my truth of what but it does it does speak to I mean when you're like oh I have this like delayed response I'm like maybe that has to do with being on a balance beam and holding to do something very stressful and hard and scary and your body just goes push those feelings down get through it deal with those feelings later it's very performance driven it's very like instant gratifying whatever so yeah like it kind of makes sense that you're like built to be this being that even after a crazy incident you're your body's response and like your mind's response is no, you go to school and you put on the show and you do a really good job and you succeed. And like you go across that balance beam and you get down from the end of that competition. And then when you go home, you can cry and tell yourself you're never going to put the outfit on again. 100%. That's exactly what it was. And our gym had this massive sign that said in the pursuit of excellence. And so I think like when you see that every single day and it's expected of you every single day, I took everything from my gym life and applied it to whatever my new challenge is. So for me, like I went from applying it to gym to applying it to work. Like I was the hardest working person, child in the rehab. Like I was like, if someone missed their their shift, I'm like, I'll go in, I'll do an extra session. Like, and so when I went back to high school, like I still got straight A's. I joined student council. I was president, like, I still and I and I and I think it's one of those things like you said it's my way of coping through life is to just really immerse myself into something um which I'm attacking <laughs> in my adulthood but um I, th- I think in a way I'm happy for it because it really did get me through what I think would have been way harder of a time if I was more lost or unfocused. Absolutely. So for sure. Have you ever done any kinds of like therapy to help you get through the, you know, the mental struggle after the accident? Yeah, I did a little bit of therapy um, in, I think, this third year of university. I think I did like three or four months of like online therapy. And then I actually did about two months of therapy um, during like the height of the whole Oprah's favorite thing. Yeah, which we're going to get into. We're going to get to. Um, That was more recent. But besides that, no, I I, the main source of my um, healing has been just like through writing. And Mm. um, yeah, other than that, I think. Right. You you do a lot of poetry. I do. That's crazy. So after your accident, they obviously put you through physical therapy. There was never a like, hey, this is like a young developing mind. Yeah, she's so, going through puberty. She saw that like they weren't like you should probably talk to a, a mental therapist as well. They did have one at the rehab, and you it was mandatory that you saw them when you came in. I think for like the first month, I think you had to see once a week, like it's mandatory. And then I think they would check up like once every three months, but it was like optional. It wasn't mandatory. So like she, I'd see them. They're like, "How are you feeling?" I'm like. I'm good. Like I, I really going to rehab was kind of felt like camp. Like it was a bunch of teenagers in a rehab, hanging out all day, eating lunch together, going to physio together. But then like at the end of the day, like when we're done doing physio, we would just hang out. So it kind of felt like, I know it sounds so awful, but 19 months at like a summer camp where you also had rehab because Mm -hmm. I was really lucky to 
be admitted during a time when there was so many teenagers like who are 14, 15, 16. So all of us were kind of like going through something crazy, but all around the same age and just not necessarily living the life of like having to go to regular school. So it was kind of like you wake up, hang out with your friends, go to rehab, and then hang out in each other's rooms. And that's kind of what it was. <laughs> it was crazy. Wow. I'm realizing now when I'm speaking out loud, I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to be empathetic to the listeners. Probably like, what is going on? Like, there's been a lot. Like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> my brain's, my mind is shattered right now because we always do our interviews and say like, we say to each other, like, let's not expect where this is going to go. And there's just a lot of assumptions with stuff like this. Like, I heard a little bit of a story from Bridget. And Bridget knows you personally. She got to know you as a person in mm-hmm. your beginning phases of being in your 20s. And so for me, it's I'm going like, man, Mary, like, you just made a lot of assumptions of what this girl's life is and what it would be as Taylor, who was, like, going to potentially qualify for the Olympics, your mind was was very well trained and like clearly you are a powerhouse of a human being. Even an incident like this, it sounds like you very quickly turned around and went like, I got cool friends here that I get to hang out with every day and I don't have to go to school. Like that's a, that's like positivity, mm-hmm. like seeping through your bones. It seems like even in the most tragic incident, you were like, this isn't awful. It could be worse. Look at all these great things. Um, yeah, it's just like, I'm, it's like shattering all the thoughts in my head I already had. And I think it's a good thing to share with people that you, yeah, this doesn't just have to be tragic. It doesn't always just have to be this, these moments of tragedy. Like there are people that persevere. Yeah. That's the I only think word I can think of. I think really. there's just so many moments of like, I work just like, I'm like, if something goes wrong, I'm like, of course this is what happened to me. Like, of course. Like, I feel like I'm just, like, tackling on at this point. Like, just like, all right, life. Like, let's go. Let's, let's. Throw it at me. Throw it at me. Give it to me. I mean, the universe, like, I'm good. Like, I'm good. Like, I've been through a lot. Like, thanks. But I think, I think when it, the way I summed it up um, during a period of time when I was just struggling a lot, but also keep going is, like, I wrote down one day this thing that kind of just has always stuck with me is like, I'm the happiest person you'll ever meet and the saddest person you'll never know. And it's just one of those things where like so many people meet me and they see one side of me and they don't get to see necessarily like the whole other aspect of me. And a lot of that has to do with how I present myself because I think for a really long time, I didn't want to feel like, I already felt like a physical burden and I'm like, I didn't want to be an emotional burden. But the truth is like, the majority of my struggles with my injury has not been physical and it has entirely been mental. And it's a huge mental battle, especially when you go through it during your teens and like in your adulthood. And like it definitely comes in waves at like specific milestones. So like when you turn 16 and like that's when my friends first started dating. And then when you turn 19, you can first start drinking. And then now as like the late 20s, when like literally every single one of my friends is either in a relationship, engaged, or getting married. And I'm just like, hey. Same. <laughs> I'll catch y'all on your second marriages. Like, oh my God, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I'll be there then. Yeah. That's a real, uh, we, we want to talk about literally everything you just like oh, pinpointed sorry. on. Taking a second. So my leg is having like a moment. A spasm attack. She's having a leg moment. Good. I think we're good. Okay. I want you to close your eyes right now. Mary is about to take you on a journey of the senses. 
So you're hanging out with your friends and the night's perfect. You're all laughing and there's lights everywhere and you're all feeling jolly and you think this night can't get any better. And then they pull out a charcuterie board and it's gorgeous. It's got all these different flavors, all these different colors. Oh, there's pickles, pickled beets, could it be? Cheeses of your dreams, soft cheeses, hard cheeses. What could be better? Mm-mm. Yes, and you can experience that too this Christmas season. Our company, Collective Creations Events, is teaming up with Worth the Whisk and doing Christmas charcuterie and dessert boards perfect for family gatherings, staff meetings, bachelorette parties, nights in alone while you cry. You know, all the things. Head to our website linked in the show notes, collectivecreations.ca forward slash cocktails dash charcuterie to make an order or send us a DM on Instagram at cocktails and charcuterie. All right, back to the podcast. Okay, so this actually like is a hard, uh, hard left turn, but what it just, your leg spasm just made me ask, want to know this question. So you come out of everything, you're going back into school, and the doctors tell you, this is your life now. You, They're telling you, okay, this is what your 20s and 30s and 40s are going to look like. You had thought ahead to that point. You're now in that phase. You're now at the point where the doctors, you know, kind of would have told you exactly what this is going to look like. Are you, is your journey forward, um, how do I want to phrase this question? How did we write this down? Um, yeah, so... Yeah. Are, are you where the doctors predicted you were going to be? Or uh, in terms of your capabilities, have you come further than what they said? Uh, I definitely have come further physically than they said. I think that they thought I would have a lot more mobility issues in my upper body. Like my upper body strength is like not awful. I can still, no, I can't physically grab your hand, but I'm still, my biceps still be like good. Tank tops. Challenge people. I can challenge like a really weak woman to a, a arm wrestling match and probably be fairly well. Um, I'm always one of those people, like, when I'm dating someone, I'm like, arm wrestle me. And they're like, what? You're so fragile. And I'm just like, do it, do it, do it. And they're like, literally, every one of my exes, I've, like, arm wrestled. And they're like, you're so <laughs> But I just, like, I, I'm just so proud of, like, how far my little bicep muscle has come. Um, From arm wrestling? In general. <laughs> this is my workout routine is arm wrestling my boyfriends. I didn't go But, um. I think I think just in general, like I, I don't think they have. But the truth is, they don't have a lot of expectations. So um, they just said, you know, life is going to be hard, and this on the third, and you know, maybe I think they expect people with spinal cord injuries to just, you know, be at home. It's an amazing accomplishment. Like they're like, if you finish school, like just know that you are a champion. And I'm like, yeah, well, like what about after that? And so I would always listen, but not really listen. So I can see how someone who, you know, didn't grow up the way I did might find themselves just settling through life. But I'm just like, I have a lot of goals and ambition. And I know that the thing is, like, my brain still works. And one of the things my mom's always said, like, why would you get a B or C in school when your brain still works the same way and you can get an A? Like, she never really changed the expectations or limited me like the doctors I think did and that helped me to be able to continue to push through mm-hmm. all of the things where into where I am right now and also having that strong mentality that you know you developed as gymnast as we talked about helps you get through those days as well absolutely moments. 100% yeah yeah which is incredible to have that like 
you're the type of person who wants to achieve the impossible. So when the doctors say, like, this is your life now, and in your head you're like, mm, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Talk to me soon. We'll see. I'll see you in 10 years. I'll let you know. Yeah. Have you been part of any like trials or experiments or anything that have like for for spinal cord injury research? Have you been part of any experiments? I haven't. I haven't been a part of any experiments. I know people who have who have gone like overseas to like Germany or different places to do like stem cells. The way that I've always seen it is that like I've already been a guinea pig once um, with trying the skill that landed me here. And I have... I'm a very patient person. Like, I have no problem being, like, the 20th person to That's fair. be, you know, to receive life-changing, whatever. Like, I don't want to be one, two, three, four, or five. Like, mm-hmm. let me be 20 and I'll be fine. What I'm doing in the right. interim is, like, I continue to go to physical rehab. I continue so that, like, my body is in the most optimal shape that it can be to be able to receive whatever comes. So whether it's through stem cells or some kind of, Thing on, like the some kind of stimulation on your spinal cord, whatever the science is, I truly believe by 40, that by like my age 40, that they will have figured something out to completely help and change my life. And I just keep my body in shape because I know that there's so many people who don't continue to do physical rehab where that if tomorrow they could take a pill and walk, their bones would shatter under the weight because they haven't stood in... 20 years but for me like I still go in a stander my body can still bear my weight and I'm doing I like to stay as fit as possible it's been a really tough COVID-19 but um trying to just keep my body uh yeah trying Mm -hmm. to keep my body as in shape as possible but in your 20s this shit doesn't bounce back like this gullet area right (laughs) The jugular? I'm like, what happened? What happened to yeah, me? Yeah, for the listener, she's she's looking at her jawline, drawn, drawn a line from her chin up to her ear. So, Taylor, what kinds of things do you do for... Because I know that you've always been, obviously, physically active and you've... Wa- and even when I knew you in university, like, you were always going to physio. You always wanted to make sure yeah. that you kept up with your, with a fitness routine. What does that look like for you? Yeah, so pre-pandemic, I used to go to, like, this rehab clinic and... They have this thing called a locomat machine, if you ever look it up, L-O-K-O-M-A-T. And it's like a robotic walker that walks in a treadmill. And it just reminds your body and your muscle retention, like, what it feels like to walk. I remember the first time I went on it, I I, I used to think that people walk same arm, same leg. Like, that's how disconnected you get from your body because you kind of forget. Um, so I do that. Did you that. do that? I have. When was the first time that you did that? Was that around when I knew you? Because I remember something about this. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was around that time. Yeah. There's a a whole video. Yeah, so I remember it. Question. It's really cool. It's very robotic looking. Transformers. I mean, it is, essentially. But so it's it's just to – the goal of it is just to keep your muscles and your bones moving to avoid, like, muscle – Yes, that's a, right yes exactly. So you want to wow, stop- Mary. I know. <laughs> right. I was like, usually the only people who like know that are people who are in the medical field or if you're like a devotee. Because well, my thinking is like, it's your, I did like a very quick study before and it was because it's essentially just the, the nerves are cut from your brain. So your muscles and your brain don't connect anymore. So yeah. th- talking about you moving again, um, <clears throat> what I was relating it to is a gentleman I knew who was training to be in the N- uh, N- oh my God. 
NHL. And he, uh, he had a seizure and they said they weren't sure if he was ever going to walk again. And then, um, I was helping them out with a fundraiser and I went there to visit him and meet him. And I was there the first day he walked and they just talked about it. And they talked about what was happening neurologically connecting his brain to his, his nerves and his muscles again, and then training the muscles to start moving. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, I don't understand. Cause there's, it's cut, like it's not yeah, connected so, anymore. So that was so- why I was like, what's the purpose? So exactly. So that machine has many purposes, depending like it, it's used on an array of people. Like if you have muscular dystrophy, if you've had a stroke, whatever it is for me and for spinal cord injuries of my level, the only like it's not going to make you walk again. However, it gets me in the motion. It gets like my body from my bone density. So my body's used to bearing the weight. So that my bones don't break if I stand up or are in motion. Um, also it's just kind of like a mental thing. Like it's just like really mentally incredible to remind yourself what it feels like to be in a standing position when you sit all day. It's like really good. It helps when you do work out, you do burn calories, helps to keep you in shape. So there definitely are a lot of things, but one of the things for people who have more muscle, um, retention than I do is like there, it stops you from atrophying because your muscles are still activating. Now I can't, talk to them and be like right leg kick out right now but when the robot robot moves it my legs start tensing up because they're like oh I should be clenching right now because I have pressure going through a quad so my body how I describe a spinal cord injury is like my level was cut at the c4 c5 so the fourth vertebrae down and at that level that's where the nerves your spinal cord is a nerve highway so that's where the nerves from my brain to my spinal cord start freaking out and that's when they split off it's a nerve highway so they don't know how to go past that point so sometimes I'll get random leg kicks like we just had a couple minutes ago where I had to stop um because my body was like oh you move slightly like this so I think that I should probably maybe kick my leg and so it just does something um which is for me I don't mind it because it's like hey at least it's not dead like it's still trying to do something. Mm-hmm. I just can't control it. Um, and it's very random. Does, as a quadriplegic, do you get phantom pain? I do. I do. Jeez, girl. Uh, I do get <laughs> phantom pain. Um, for somebody who might not know what that is, it's like they, they call it like phantom limb. If you've ever met someone who's a an amputee, it's like where you can still feel pain or feel like your body is there even though it's not. And for me, I still get like nerve pain inside of my legs, even though I'm not, if you were to touch it on the outside, I can't feel it. So it's a very weird sensation. And I It's like the only thing you can feel is pain in your body. Yes. And I'm constantly, if I'm not in pain, I'm constantly like my body right now is just where I don't feel it's pins and needles. Like it, with that feeling when you go to sleep and you wake up on your arm and it's like, weird Mm -hmm. that's what my body feels like in the majority of my body all day so I've just kind of had to like mentally block it out because it gets very irritating like pins and needles too because is it is it like a confusing yeah sorry finish that sorry like pins and needles yeah yeah like my legs right now are like pins and needles um and so is it does it get confusing because it's like in my mind if that were me I'd be like oh my god is the feeling coming back like that would be the Really soon after I woke up, I'm like, that's, I used to call it, like, when my doctors would tell me that I'm not going to walk in, I'm like, I don't understand what you mean. Like, my legs, I can feel pins and needles, and 
sometimes and like that means that it's like thawing out and like in 20 minutes I can like you know you just have to hit your arm a couple times and then just start doing things mm-hmm. but it just doesn't <laughs> so it's just like a constant numbness it's very bizarre I, I've mm-hmm. never been able to really properly describe it but like because so many different areas of my body have different feeling and in different strengths or just not at all so every body part is just kind of different and you just kind of get used to living with it yeah interesting well mary and i grew up uh working with kids with uh special needs so we kind of have an idea of the day-to-day life of somebody with a disability but can you tell us about the specific intricacies of your day that we might not think of like what is it like to you know not be able to get out of bed by yourself in the morning or not be able to go to the bathroom by yourself what are the things that we wouldn't think of yeah so i have full-time care like 24 7 so I mean, not someone who's sitting beside me 24-7, but people who come in and out of my home every couple of hours. I have nurses and PSWs, and my PSWs, they get me up in the morning, and what that means is, like, help me shower, get dressed, help me with, like, just, like, everyday care, transferring to my chair. Nowadays, like, I, when I first got injured, I couldn't even brush my teeth or anything by myself. Now I brush my teeth by myself, I wash my face by myself. I can assist with 90% of my makeup except for mascara. But I feel like even able-bodied people struggle with mascara and eyeliner. So I don't don't feel too (laughs) left out with that. Um, And, yeah, they – and then my nurses to help with some more the harder things. But I generally, like – it's weird because they're here, but, like, they've become so used to my – I'm so used to it now that they're kind of like, oh, yeah, like every couple hours my friend comes over to mm-hmm. help me do stuff. But <laughs> what is it like going back into a very dependent state? How did you change your mentality around that? That's been my entire – the hardest – I think one of the hardest things for me is, like, I was such an independent person, like an independent go-getter. Like, I, my mom had never had to tell me to do my homework like or to, like, go practice or anything like I always just did everything and so to go from being so independent to relying on someone to literally like move your leg for you it drove and still does to this day drive me crazy like right now I'm dealing with like I have been the last person of anyone I know to like move out of the home because I need help but like now I'm like in the process of moving and I'm so excited because like that's one aspect of independence that I'm trying to like recapture, but like I won't lie, like it's it's so difficult. Like it drives me crazy. It's a source of the majority of my anxiety because sometimes you're just like, I just want to do it myself and can't. And I have to be really honest with myself that, you know, yeah, it's it's just the one thing I can't fix. And as someone who is a fixer and a go getter, it drives me crazy. It's, it's probably the worst thing. I think that's one of the things that, like, in my relationships has come up so often because for me, like, I'm sure we'll get into that at some point, but, like, one of the biggest things, like, when I start dating someone, I don't want them to feel like a caregiver. Like, I have my whole life set up. Like, I was doing this before you, without you, so, like, don't feel like you're coming into my life to be a caretaker. So when they come in and they want to, like, help do something or cook something for me instead of, like, one of my nurses doing it or, like, helping me with something medical instead of one of my PSWs. I'm like, no, don't do that. And 
I like to do what I call post interviews when I break up with people. And the same complaint, I'm so weird. The same complaint I've had across all boyfriends is like, you did not let me help you. And I'm sorry, do you like an exit interview with your relationship? <laughs> That's what she just said. She just post interview. I'm not even kidding. Like, <laughs> I, I know we just glared by that, but like legit, like I do like serving. Like, what can I do better next time? Seriously, I'm like literally like, I literally go, what could I have done to be better? Because I've broken every single one of my exes. I broke up with them, right? So it's not like me coming from a space of like, what did I do? Love me. Love me. Yeah. Just because I'm moving on, like, I just want to know, like, how can I be better? Even though I know you are the problem, but like, <laughs> if there's anything. That I you're just be waiting better. till that one day that guy is like, nothing, Taylor. And you're like, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, no. They definitely, they definitely have a list. Um, but one of the things that comes up is. <laughs> <The list. laughs> one of the things that comes up is like, I don't let you help. Like, you didn't let me help. Oh, me. Yeah. And I've had to really like, just at first when I heard it the first time I'm like nah <laughs> You're second wrong. time I'm like nah <laughs> third time and fourth time I was like oh it's okay. a little too consistent I hear you You're like but I don't need help that's the thing I know I don't I don't want to feel needy but when in so many aspects of my life it's gonna sound so horrible but in so many aspects of my life where I'm like more of a go-getter than maybe the people I've dated in the past yeah they feel a sense of like I my exes have said I demasculate them and so oh my God, let's get one into of the this. aspects that they really wanted to try to do is like help me and that made them feel like a man and I would mm-hmm. take even that away from them and so that was like a huge problem in a relationship so. I'm so lit up by this right now okay first of all Taylor you find yourself a man that doesn't need you to validate their feelings of a man. They can figure that out on their damn self. That guy's never going to solve this problem by needing to feel more fucking... Ah, okay, here's my thought. So No, I, I, get really, I get really passionate about it too because it's literally come up in every single one of my relationships. And I'm yes. just like... I said this to Bridget. I said this to Bridget and my brothers were the ones who said this to me. The relationship I'm in now is like arguably the only successful relationship I've had. I haven't had many in the past and the ones I've had, I'm like, what is it like kind of similar to you? I'm like, how can I get better at this? Cause like, I feel like as a strong, very, um, independent go-getter person, maybe I am just like steamrolling people and I need to learn to not do that. And then my brother said to me, it was like a year ago, it was just before I met Matt. And they said, he said, he's like, no, you don't dim your light for someone else because you want to be with someone. And he's like, you need to find someone that has the strength and the confidence to steamroll you back. Like there is a piece where it's like, no, 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 no. Like you don't, you being a go-getter and an independent and an entrepreneur with goals and a life and wanting to take care of yourself is nothing to ever be like, that shouldn't be a negative to me. I'm like, that's not a reason. Oh, come on. Mary's all fired up about this. I am fired up. I really, really am. I think a lot of women can relate to that. And I it's definitely something I'm working on and working through. And I think when you you have those insecurities and then I'm just like, but I'm not changing my life, my lifestyle, because I've worked really hard to get to where I am and someone's just going to have to meet mm-hmm. me where I am. And then also acknowledging the fact that like I can be – type A and hard and like a go-getter but also acknowledge that I can be like 
not soft, but like I can have someone help me in life and be there for me in life as well. And they can also have whatever they're doing and going on. And I just yeah. haven't found the balance yet, but I, through my post interviews, I'm trying to do better to be better yeah. going forward without settling. I think it's really hard to settle, especially I see so many girls in chairs who settle for like literally the bare minimum because they're like, no one's going to love me in my situation. Oh. And I thought that too at first. Like, I'm just like, no one's going to like love me or want to be with me. But now I'm just like, I'm a bad bitch. Like, you are. I'm like, you're welcome. Like, <laughs> yeah. Come on. Like, of course you want me, obviously. Are, you're on dating apps right now. We were talking about that a little bit beforehand. Yeah. Um. So, what is it like? Do you find that guys are like, how do you find the ones who aren't treating you differently? You know, it's it's a roller coaster. I, I didn't start dating until I was, I didn't have my first boyfriend until I was 21. And I didn't start thinking about dating until I was 20. And it was when I went to LA for something, I went to do like physio out there, this really great place. And I met a bunch of different girls in chairs. And they were talking about obviously girl dating and stuff like, oh my God, like Taylor, like what's your dating life like? I'm like, oh, I'm not because like I can't. And they're like, why? And there was this girl there who had been with her boyfriend for like five years. And she's like, Taylor, like someone will love you. Like you're incredible. I'm like, no. She's like, I challenge you when you go home to just try. And I tried. And oh man, I learned so much. Like I've had about, definitely go through, that sounds horrible. I've definitely dated quite a few men and they are, all different and incredible. And I think the biggest lesson I've learned is that it is 100% possible for someone to see past the disability and get to know you. And I think that's why we create such like deep bonds so quickly because sex isn't the first thing we're talking about. Like we're talking about like intimacy in different ways, like getting to really know you, like really bonding and just seeing beyond that, and when you don't put physical at the very first forethought of your life in when you're dating, it creates a whole different dynamic. I definitely run into thousands of idiots on dating apps. <laughs> like, I was, I have, like, a whole, like, Dropbox folder full of, like, absurd things people have said. Someone would be like, oh, like, I want to, like, F you back to good health, or I want to, Oh, my God! Like, oh, my God, the amount of times I've been called Hot Wheels... Or like, or like try harder, people. Yeah, <laughs> original. Yeah, there's a whole subsection of people who will be like, "Oh my god, you're like way too pretty to be disabled," and I'm like, "That's ableism at its finest," because it's like you're making the assumption that people in chairs have to be ugly, and that's like so crazy. And then also, it's like the most oh backhanded compliment. I remember you also told me once in university that that people fetishize sometimes yes yeah so there's this whole subsection of people called devotees which is where the real hard part comes because so a devotee is someone who has a fetish for people with disabilities or specifically in chairs mainly like either in wheelchairs or amputees you i encounter being someone who is very open with my life like I was Bridge, like if you Google, you can find a lot of things about me. I'm more quote unquote visible than maybe the more average like person in a wheelchair. And so I get DMs all the time. My DMs are literally 
a dumpster fire of like devotees from all over the world who contact me and just are so fixated on the disability. And I, when I was in university, I remember being in like the Ryerson like hall in the Ted Rogers building. And I used to conduct, I'm so weird. I used to conduct studies after encountering so many of them for so many years. I was like, you know what? I need to get to like the nitty gritty of this. And I, yeah. Let's dissect this. Yeah. Some of these guys are like this because they've had some form of childhood trauma where like there's this one guy, his mom had died when he was really young. His first grade teacher was in a wheelchair and she became like a mother figure for him. So now he has this fixation like he's only attracted Interesting. to people in chairs. That's one subsection. But the majority yeah. of these men is a dominating like a sexual thing like they just see you almost like a rag doll because maybe you can't do as many things so they can they are in full control of the sexual experience danger yeah and it's very dangerous so you have to imagine when i'm on on dating apps i have to be so well aware of like the 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 tells and signs of someone like that who could potentially be very very dangerous for me and so it's, I'm so good at spotting them now, but I remember this one guy at Ryerson, he was a devotee and he started following me and I was terrified. Like I was so scared because he was just so crazy and like so fixated on me and would like show up after like my different lectures and he'd just be there. What? Yeah, it's crazy. There, I've been on full on like dates with my boyfriend at the time. And like a guy who's a devotee will come up to me and like pretend like my boyfriend is not there and be and then just start like saying all the things that are tell signs that you're a devotee. And I'm like, my boyfriend almost got my ex-boyfriend almost got into a fight with a guy one time because he was just like he didn't understand and I had to explain to him. But it's it's crazy. Yeah, like Maybe being on apps and whatnot, I I hated it and I hated those experiences where you get like those gross boys and just yeah. like Guys who are on there for a very different reason than we would be potentially. Um, I mean, I don't know the reasons you're on dating apps, but having, you know, looking for relationships or looking for bonds with people. And then there are those people that are just out there because they're, they want the sexy times and, you know, something quick and fun or something different or fetishizing for you. Has it like your, are your struggles with online dating, um, like filtering those people out? Is it connecting with people or is it like an easier way to break that? Like, Hey, just so you know, this is this piece about me. This is what I'm looking for. Get the fuck out of here. If you're not either, like, how do you handle it? It's, it's actually, it's, I've always described it as like almost like a blessing in disguise, but it's really easy to fish out the people who are only wanting to have sex with you. And for so many men too, right? Like, they, I think they just have struggles so much with like the idea of even being attracted to someone who might have a disability. And then they're like, and then there's a whole subsection of people who also, who aren't devotees, but just were like, I want to check, they literally say, I want to check it off my list as something I've done. And I'm just like, hmm, well, you're not checking it off my list with me. Yeah. There are lots of girls who will gladly do that. Um, so it's fairly easy to filter those guys out. I think the hardest part though is not that I don't have a, I do have a lot of likes, but I probably would have 10 times more because like so many right. people are just like, I won't even give it a try. So I tend to do better in person. Like if you meet me in person, I've had like people be like, have a conversation with me. And I think when you get to know me, 
then you're like, oh. And that's why every first date I've gone on, except for one, turned into a relationship. Because really? I it's yeah. a really good success rate. I need to know your secret. <laughs> I don't go on dates um, unless I've talked to the guy for close to probably three weeks or a month. And mm. in that point, if I'm making to go on a date with you, it's because I can actually visualize myself going on a second, third, fourth. Like, I've never just gone on a date and be like, I'm probably never going to see them again. Like, I always mm. know that it's going to turn into something more. So I've probably only had them. four or five dates, but those have all turned into some form of relationship. And um, I've talked to probably over 100, but, like, actually go on a date, very minimal. Um, but that's really? a test to, like, my filtering process. Don't get me wrong. They'll mostly go crazy at the end. But... Um, they lead to something more. So when you meet someone that you like, you guys have been talking for a while, is it, do you, it's like, when you said that, like, yeah, as soon as I get out of the chair, it, it you're entrusting them with your life. Um, that's a little mind blowing for me because your take, you like everyone should take those intimate moments with that much gravity, I believe. And so for you, there is no choice. This is how this has to go. So is your, like, have you just come up with a method of like, okay, I'm going to talk to them for a while on the app. Then I need to approach the subject of intimacy and relationship. Or do they usually get really curious? Like, do you have guys who are just like, hey, wait, so how is this going to work? Um, or is that like a in-person conversation? <laughs> oh, no, they definitely get curious. Like, and I, and I never meet up with someone without having that conversation first, like definitely somewhere between those weeks, like it obviously comes up. Like I, I want people to know, and I will continue to advocate and say very loudly that like people with disabilities still have sexual desires. Like I always joke yeah. with my friends. I'm like, I low key think I might've like had a very high mm-hmm. kill count if I wasn't in a wheelchair. Cause like, I'm just by nature, very, I, I, I enjoy like, you know, getting to know people and like intimacy. And I think it's a very amazing and beautiful thing. That being said, I understand the curiosity factor is extremely high. And if they are even for a second considering taking and being a my boyfriend, they have to take into account how they feel about that too. And I totally understand because for them, it's almost like they have to wipe out their entire previous history and get to, I remember one guy being like, I feel like I just lost my virginity again. And because it, it's true, it's it's different. It's still amazing, but it's different. And you have to acknowledge that, the, the limitations perhaps. But because you build such a beautiful bond before that happens, I feel like, and I've experienced more people have said it's better because you it's not just about like flesh on flesh. It's like it's an actual intimate experience. And I try to be as honest and open with them as I can be. God bless my first boyfriend when he was like, what is that like? And I'm like, I don't know. Help me. <laughs> Let's find out. <laughs> we're going to have to, if we do it, we're, we're going to have to figure it out together. And he is still someone I love and care for. And it's still a part of my life um, today, which I'm very grateful for. Um, but yeah, it's just a lot of conversations, which I think a lot of people, more people need to do. I think it's something people who are disabled or not could learn from because us as females, we are more vulnerable and things happen. Like, I'm just literally, like, watching the Gabby Petito case this week and I'm just like, 
you could be able-bodied, you could be healthy, and, like, something can go wrong. Yeah. But as much as possible with communication and, like, the one of the things I do is, like, when I go start dating someone, they don't know it, but, like, for the first three or four dates, I have someone who's there. Like, my last person I dated, the first four dates we went on, one of my nurses was, like, sitting in the restaurant at another table eating by herself. He has no idea who she is. And, like, if I felt something was off, I'd go to the bathroom. She'd get up and go, too. And he, they would have no idea. And I don't tell them until, like, a year later. And they're like, oh, really? I love really? that. I would have seen her by But every single one person I've ever dated for at least the first three dates, either a friend or a nurse is there. And it gives me a sense of security in case something goes wrong. I got someone who can just, like, knock hey. him out. You know, heard them. Right there. Right yeah. there. A taser. I wish I had a taser. <laughs> so you said um, in our little pre, pre-chat survey thing that we send out, you said uh, breakups was a, a low part of your 20s. So can you, talk, can you talk about that? Were you in a very serious relationship that something might have gone wrong? I know you do your post-relationship interviews, but... <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um. Yeah. Well, I think like like I said, I've dated. I, I've I've had a, a decent dating life and dated very different guys. And the thing that why I put it as low is because I've been the one to break up with all of them. And I think a lot of people think that a lot of people wouldn't even expect that. Um. I think they were a lot of people expect like me to be the person who gets broken up with, but it's always been me. And I think what it is is like. Partial disappointment for me because I realized in so many different situations I settled. And I think a lot of it had to do with me being insecure and thinking that I wouldn't get any better. And if my God, if one of them hears this, I'm so sorry to say that. But I think we also mm-hmm. realize what I mean by that. And um, two, it's just like it, it does suck. Like it sucks when, you know, you feel like you don't get it right or you don't see like warning signs soon enough. And like, this being, like, coming from a sense of I've never, to my knowledge, been cheated on. That's never been, like, the source of a breakup. It's always just been, like, we are going in two different directions. Or, like, I cannot continue to cradle your fragility with your manhood in order to maintain a relationship. And and people think that when you break up with them that you're going to be completely fine. It's yeah. like, no, it's still hard because they're not bad people. They're just not for you. And having to have a conversation with people is extremely mm-hmm. difficult when there's always and a fear like, and a doubt right like am i doing yeah. the right thing me too i always have that like post so i'm just like could i have stuck mm-hmm. it out is that the right thing now they're like heartbroken and and the, i think what i put as the major low is because especially with my last boyfriend he was like very borderline like problematic in terms of like post breakup like he just would not leave me alone and it created a lot of like fear and anxiety because I'm just like I don't know how to make this person stop contacting me from different numbers and like driving by my home and like I just felt very unsafe not that he has ever done anything but just like and I had to explain that to him even just recently and be like if you ever cared about me don't contact me again on any other platform because Otherwise, this is going to be a really big problem, and I don't feel safe. And he's been, he's been silent ever wow. since. Um, but, yeah, I think it just – I've had to take time to just really – I broke up with him in March right when the pandemic started, and um, I've taken the time to just 
debrief, get to know me more, focus on my work, and now I'm getting back in the game. So. Good for you. You want to be a mother, right? I heard that on an interview. That, yes, um, I do. That you did. I think it was Afterglow again. Um, so what does that look like? For so, Like, what are your fears that are different from, you know, my fears from being a mother? Like, I'm just scared, you know, about having somebody else's life. Adulting is hard. I'm like, how the hell am I going to adult w- and take care of a child? Like, I just don't know how I'm going to do it. But having that added factor of the limitations that you have, what kind of things do you have to consider? A lot. Um, I have been very proactive. And so when I was 24, I actually froze my eggs. So I'm. it's the best thing I've ever done. It makes me so happy because especially like being someone who's focused so much about their work life, like I'm not necessarily worried about like family life right now because I've done something so proactive. You don't have a timeline anymore. Yeah, I don't yeah. have a timeline, which is amazing. Yeah, that sounds nice. I'd like that. <laughs> Yeah, I would really highly encourage it if you can do it, to do it. Um, But for me, if I want to have a child, I would have a surrogate. Um, I'm really happy that surrogacy in modern-day media is very well and more talked about because I think it's a really great option, especially. There's so many reasons why someone could have a surrogate. I struggled and still struggle and will probably continue to struggle with the fact that I will have to have, like, full-time nanny care to do the physical heavy lifting of the child. But I think the reason also why I'm working so hard is so that when I'm ready for that parenthood, I can be home right beside the parent, the nanny every single day. Mm-hmm. So my child knows me as mom and doesn't get to know this caregiver as mom. And just, right. even though she's physically holding you, I'm still the one, I'm still your parent. I'm still the one who calls the shots. You belong to. And then eventually, you know, when your baby starts walking and stuff like that, like, once the baby is, like, able to walk and all those things, like, it's totally different and I'm good. But in those first few moments, I'm just going to have to really probably have, like, a, I don't know, probably need therapy to get through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully a supportive person. Um, but, yeah, I just, that's kind of, like, what my birthing plan, I guess, is looking like. And- but I really want to be a mom. So why would you do surrogacy? Can like can you carry a baby if you wanted to? I could. Yeah, like I could get I could get pregnant and I could carry a baby just as easily as um anyone else. The difference is is that partially my anxiety like if I can't feel a baby kick, I would be one of those women who would be like in and out of the doctor's office like every day I'd be like I need an ultrasound and like I don't think that stress is very good for pregnancy. True. Additionally, I have a far higher risk of like not making it through birth because of like my blood pressure spikes it's very difficult with spinal cord injuries to get that blood pressure to go down and things like that so there are just a few other considerations like I'm not trying to birth a child into this world and then die and then let them be child like motherless you know what I mean like that would not be fun right wouldn't there be a lot of complications with um like the the birthing process itself because you wouldn't feel contractions you wouldn't know that your body was going into labor. During, I, I know people who have given birth and like during the ending cycles, they have to be in the hospital like around that time, monitored, typically C-section. So there mm. definitely are people who do it, people with like way higher injuries and way more complicated injuries than me. Um, so it's possible. I just don't think, 
and I could change my mind. Like, I could be five years from now and be like, hey, guys, like, talking 20, like, I actually did it myself. Four months pregnant. <laughs> talking babies. <laughs> I don't, I don't in this moment feel like it's my journey. Um, but if it happens to be that way, it is what it is. But I think I feel more comfortable with a surrogate. Um, but that also is a conversation like, what if my future partner doesn't like that? But mm-hmm. anybody I've ever been in a relationship, when that kind of conversation comes up about, like, what are we doing in the future? They've all been like, I care more about your health. And if you feel health-wise this isn't for you, then that's fine. And I think I could only be with a person who would put my health considerations before the taboo of, like, having a surgery. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about the process of freezing your eggs with them? This is, I'm learning through a friend of mine who has a new company called Lilia. And she put this out as like, go be a badass bitch. She always wanted to run her own company, very similar personalities to us. And she was like, I want to freeze my eggs. And she learned how hard the process was, which just confused me because I thought like you just go to the doctor and say, I want to freeze my eggs and it's done. And she's starting to advocate more about all this. And it's blowing my mind um, how not. I have no idea about Exactly. This. <laughs> but there's so much to consider about women's fertility in your own body. So when you're 24, what, what brings you to decide to do this? And what was the experience like? It was two reasons why I decided to do it, especially so young. One of them being, I knew my mom before, I'm I'm an only child, and I knew my mom before having me, she had some struggles. And so I kind of in my head made the assumption that I might also have struggles having a child. So I'm like, the earlier you do it, obviously the better. And additionally, I was going to do this bladder surgery later on in that year. And I had explained to my urologist, I'm like, do I do this first or do you think I should do, what do you think I should do first? And she's like, in the worst case scenario, if something happens during surgery, I would want for you to have had your eggs frozen. Because mm. when we open you up, God knows, because like, you, you know, if you're doing anything near your bladder, it's a similar area, they're like, she's like, I would advise you to do it first because I would hate for something to go wrong and then you not have that option. So it was kind of those two things. And I figured, like, the younger you are, the probably the healthier your eggs would be. And so, and I just kind of was like, I'm not really doing anything right now, so just get her done. And so I did it. And <laughs> the process was crazy. I had to take, like, two self-administered injections of hormones a day. It's like having 20 periods at once. It's crazy. What? It, oh, so in a normal period cycle, you drop one egg. Yeah. When I went in to extract my eggs, I had 31. Oh, my. And 22 of them were healthy enough to be frozen. Does it hurt? It doesn't. It didn't hurt me, but I was, like, super hormonal. My stomach was, it looked probably looked like four or five months pregnant. Like, it was crazy. So can you, like, not have sex at that time because you're, like, the most fertile ever? <laughs> yeah, no, no, they do not recommend it. They do not recommend it. <laughs> you, yeah. Now you have 32 babies in your tummy. <laughs> I was single, so it was a perfect time. But, like, yeah, that's why sometimes they'll do that, and then they'll advise women to, you know, try if you had a partner. Uh For me, my end goal with it, because that same process is used to create embryos in in the womb, in in vitro. The same thing is kind of like the same process. My process just ends with extraction freeze. Sometimes it's extraction 
meet with a sperm, make an embryo, and then implant it back into you, or injecting you with a lot of hormones so you can try to have sex, get pregnant, and do it naturally. So it was a really wild experience, and I remember I was doing it during a time when I remember it was like a near, it was near Halloween, and my friend invited me to a Halloween party, and I couldn't drink for the three weeks I was going through it, and so I was like out at a party, loaded, feeling like five months pregnant, not being able to drink, and I'm like, what is my life right now? And then shortly after, just you know, getting it done, and it's really the smartest, best thing I've ever done because I don't stress out about it. Do you pay to keep the eggs frozen? Is it like a subscription? <laughs> it is. <laughs> My every time, every time it comes around every year, I'm just like, oh, let me go pay for my babies to be safe. Pay for my little frozen babies. I think it's like two hundred dollars a year. And how much is the whole process of it? It could be anywhere between ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Wow. So for me, I definitely have like, I think it starts at like ten, and then there's like two to three thousand dollars worth of for the um, medication, the hormone medication. But depending on how much you need, that could be more. So for me, I had like the bare minimum because I was just really young. I was really fertile. But if you're like 36 going in, you're going to need like all the help and medication, highest wow. dosage you could ever need. And so that process might be more $15,000. But I feel like OHIP is covering a lot of these things now or like a good portion of it. It Wouldn't they only be covering it though if you were doing it because of like like not for your own like I just want to do this for preventative measures it's more so like if you can't have a baby at that time yeah like me I don't even know like I would assume maybe it would be like oh you're like you have cancer and so they do it but I know for friends of mine that have had to do it it's you just pay you have to pay out of pocket which is just it's sad and it's heart-wrenching and it's I think it's a bigger conversation about that. Like the fact that you did that at 24 is so rare, um, provides you so much opportunity. I have this timeline in my head where I'm like, this is going to get really hard in the next five years, five years. Holy shit. Like what if that's not my journey? This is insane. And it's just sad and it sucks that I, I had that conversation with my boyfriend cause he's 30, but he's like, I could wait another five years. And I was like, Dude, you realize what you're asking of me? But then the other side of it is I go spend $20,000 and freeze my eggs, which I'm like, well, this just sucks. I'm in a rock and a hard place. I mean, I want the baby now personally, but. It's a really difficult thing. I have a friend right now who's going through the hardest time. She looks like she's in her early 30s, going through the hardest time with just realizing she probably should have started that process earlier and all those different things. And I think for me, like, it gives me so much, it's the one thing I was able to control. Like, I was able to make that decision for myself. I was very blessed to be in a position to be able to afford to be able to do that. But I think right now, like, I see it like, whether I have a man or not, like, I'm fine. Like, I could have a baby. And that's, I think, a really beautiful thing. My, funny enough, my first boyfriend and I still, like, say, like, if we, if I don't find someone like he would still be willing to, you know, donate the goods. And I think that's why he's such a great person. Um, and I think <laughs> just I'm really lucky to have these options. And I realize how maybe in a lot of ways I'm not very fortunate or like have like a lot of like things against me, but that 
I think as a woman is just a sense of huge sense of relief um, because I do have a lot of maternal instincts and yeah, I want to have babies. I want to have babies yeah. right now. Oh. I want 12 tomorrow. My friend has two and I'm like, I want it. Oh. Not two at once though. You don't want twins. Dumbbells, man. But like the likelihood of having twins is, is, is way higher with um, IVF. So, yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Which is terrifying. Um, so we're talking a lot about all this. We're talking about you moving. So I'm assuming you're moving into your house because you told us that you have a house. Condo. Is that correct? Condo. Condo. Okay. Condo. So you're moving into a new home. When does that happen? I literally was supposed to bring some more clothes over today. Um, been moving clothes over uh, for the last couple of days and just slowly doing that. It's a it's a process because I'm also having I'm in the process now of trying to find and hire like an additional care like caregiver. But it has to be kind of like a hybrid between like a PSW slash assistant slash I really want them to be Spanish speaking because I've been self-teaching myself Spanish. So I want to keep that up. So it's like I'm looking for like the perfect person who also can drive and like is okay with being like an assistant slash like nurse and like would go out with me to drink. But like would also. (laughs) Very specific criteria. (laughs) Looking for that PSW to be your best friend and continue to teach you Spanish. Yeah, it's like paying to be like a best friend, which is a little <laughs> bit like messed up in itself. But I've had one of them before, and she was great. Like she, we, I went. Oh, and it has to be able to like fly. Like I went with the last person I had. Like we went to LA, and like one day we ended up at a strip club. And uh, I will be your PSW slash assistant slash best friend. Can you imagine? Oh my god, Bridget would be so good at this. And she can do social media and marketing for you. <laughs> Bridget, go get your PSW certification or schooling, whatever. <laughs> what does this involve? I'll be there tomorrow. 9 a.m.? 9 a.m. start? <laughs> Whenever we like or or the process of interviewing people. And I'm just like, I always think to myself, like, how soon do I reveal like my full personality and like the things we're going to probably get into right away, right away. But I ha- it's kind of interesting to like feel them out and like, so like, would you feel comfortable if like two weeks from now, I'm just like, I'm going on a plane. And most times obviously they're like, yeah, that's totally cool. But like, it really has to be the right fit because the person becomes a part of your life and Mm -hmm. especially with me transitioning into so many different new things like having and running up my own I call my my own home and like being in my own space what does that mean like dating outside of the home like it's just I'm so excited about this next part of my adulthood because I've seen so many of my friends like be able to have that freedom and now I'm finally comfortable with myself finally comfortable with my career and everything to be able to just do this next adulthood step. And I think it's going to lead to so much more. Yeah. I'm really excited. Maybe you're doing it backwards. Don't look for PSWs that fit the criteria. Find Bridget and tell her to go get the education <laughs> she needs to do the assi- What the-, the criteria is. Yeah. I'll be, I'll, I'll download Duolingo tonight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's missing the Spanish. I love Duolingo. Shout out to them. Duolingo, sponsor us. I have you on my phone. I never use you. And it reminds me every day. Just me, Bridget. Just me, Bridget. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. So, yeah. So, you own, you bought your condo. That's incredible. Um, 
I'm wanting to get into the entrepreneur money business stuff because I think our listeners are like, what is she talking about? What is this girl's life? So the very obvious statement that we're talking about is after your accident and you went through, uh, you, you sued the guy that pursued the double flip thingy magician move that didn't work. Um, wow, I am not functioning today. Um, but you sued him. So then you were given lots of money, which was helpful because it takes care of you and makes sure that you can live as best as possible, um, which obviously gave you the opportunity to freeze your eggs. Yeah. Right. Is that what gave you the ability to start up your company? Is that how you were able to get it off the ground? Yeah. Like I, so I don't want the misconception to be that it was like so much money because I think think one of those things like people think like, oh, you know, they're lost at like Eric a trillionaire. And it's like, "Mm, no, not really. Like one of the things people don't realize is like, if you do go through something like that, I had to pay back the government because um, if you, they realize you go through a lawsuit, I had to pay back, oh, hip, like over a million dollars. So like, why? it's not... Um, it's just like a rule and law type of thing. Like if you go through a lawsuit, it's like, it's so weird and complicated, but it's like a thing. And so I have to pay back a lot. Oh, is it because like you use OHIP and then you get money out of a court case for healthcare? So it's like, well, you can't double dip? Kind of. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. It's so weird. Um, that was a new thing I, I learned. And then, um... And then you have to, I think what people sometimes need to take into account is like, we don't know, right? When you were, I went through, I was done by 18. It was really quick. We didn't have to go to court. It was settled outside of court. But I think what people don't know is like, you are taking account, you don't know what your rest of your life is going to look like. I didn't know if I was going to go to university. I didn't know if I was going to have a job. I didn't know these things. And then they take into account like, what could your potential career trajectory could have been I wanted to be a sports doctor how much money would I have made as a sports doctor taking that in how much money will I possibly need for therapy because I'm going through a lot and so they take all of these things into account and these things are expensive like my therapy is like fifty thousand dollars a year like it's life is my life is very not my fabulous sides like my Mm. life to live is expensive I have to pay nurses. It's expensive. Imagine being responsible for several people's pay their life, lives. You yeah. know what I mean? It's expensive. So, um, and it gets more expensive as I get older because, you know, life. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I was able to take a little bit of money. I didn't take very much money to start my business. I started my business probably with my startup expenses were like fifteen to $20,000, which I guess the – if it wasn't for me, the average person probably could have gotten a loan. Um, but I was able to, I don't, I w- I'm really proud of myself for never really dipping into my own money beyond my startup costs to fuel my business. It's always been like, I haven't paid myself to this day. Three, I'm going to be, my business is going to be three November 26. I haven't paid myself once because everything that we make, I put right back into the business. And um and so it's 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 grown so much and I'm really proud of where we are like we've had so much success in such a little period of time and I'm just it's just so crazy because I never thought I would be doing what I'm doing 
but I absolutely love running my business. So it's a tea company and you were listed on, okay, so this is like one of my favorite stories because when I saw this on Instagram, I was like, this is hilarious because you have always been obsessed with Oprah as long as I've known you. Always. You and Will Reed, our frosh daddy, always talked about Oprah. (laughs) Always. All the time. And now you start up this company and she lists you on her favorite things of 2020. But it wasn't even like you reached out to her to have that happen. They reached out to you. So can you tell us a little bit about that? How did that, what was that story? So last year in 2020, around, which is, okay, again, which is so crazy because on, so I was injured July 15th, 2008. July 15th, 2020. So every July 15th, I wake up, I'm typically sad because it's a memory of the worst day of my life, yada, yada, yada. I wake up, bad mood, um, but I'm going through the motions, whatever. Open my email. My email is like, hi, my name is Blank from O Magazine. We found your company online. We want you to send one of everything um, for consideration for the December issue. And I read it, and I was like, there ain't no damn way. This is not real. Mm-hmm. I thought it was spam. I got so many weird emails every single day. And so I deleted it and went about my day because, again, going back to what Bridget said, like, my love of Oprah is not fake. It's not just something new. Like, I have been obsessed with her my entire life. My mom and I used to run home after my long day of gym to watch, like, taped versions of her show, her talk show. When I wrote in to get into Ryerson, my, like, whatever thing you have to write when you're applying to RTA, I wrote that I want to be a hybrid of Ellen Maya Angelou and Oprah because I just felt like I wanted to be an entertainment reporter like post accident that was like my career choice and I've only ever subscribed to O Magazine so it just seems so unbelievable and for it to come on July 15th yeah it's fake that's not real I was like there's literally no way but a couple hours later I couldn't get it out of my head and I googled her the person who emailed me ended up being real long story short after weeks, we sent product back and forth. Then eventually- Going through your deleted emails like, damn it, damn it, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they send me an email being like, you've made it past this round. We wanted to send to Oprah's home and Gail King's home. I'm like, the fact that I even have her like address in my email right now, I feel like I'm like, this is not true. I kissed the packages before they left the door. Oh. <laughs> So cute. We got chosen. We got chosen to be a part of her favorite things. Okay, so Gail and Oprah drank your tea. Yes. What tea did you give them? So they, we curated six teas to be chosen for the, what they call the Cup of Tea Lux Organic Tea Set. And of course, we had the chai in there, Chicha Chai, because Oprah's obsessed with chai. Um, Creamy Girl Grey, English Breakfast, Nomsberry Delight. And two other herbal teas, peppermint devotion and zesty lemon ginger. And it, when I tell you it's like life changing, like my life completely changed after that experience. And it was insanely, I think RTA prepared me for like the amount of media attention I got. Like it was like crazy. Like every single media outlet was contacting me. Our story trended on Twitter for three days. Like, it was just madness. It led to so many things. Like, it got us into Indigo. It got us into the Bay. It got us 
into the Grammys, the Oscars. Like, it's just insane. Wait, the Grammys? Okay, I'm confused about the Grammys and the Oscars. <laughs> how does, what does that, how does that work? <laughs> RT was part, so the people, I had done a speaking engagement shortly after the Oprah thing. And this lady, like, just loved me. And she happened to go out for lunch with her friend. And her friend happens to be the person who organizes the gift bags for for the Grammys and Oscars. And he was like, hey, like, yeah, like, I'm in the process of picking some items. And she was like, hey, have you heard of this company? Like, I just interviewed the owner, and she's amazing. And they reached out. Long story short, we end up in the Oscar and Grammy gift bags this year. Um <sighs> That's so wild. Yeah. So like Justin Bieber and Haley Bieber are sipping cup of tea right now is what you're telling me. Yes. Oh my That's God. so cool. The cool thing the cool thing about it was that all of the packages this year were sent directly to their home because they didn't have a lot of like in-person interaction. So instead of them getting it at the event, it was actually shipped directly to their homes because sometimes when it happens at the event, their assistants will take it or things like yeah. that or like, you know what I mean? But it was actually sent to each one of their individual homes. So, wow. I am looking at the website right now um, as you're talking because I just wanted to like see some of these things. First of all, I want all your teas, and I'm going to order some as soon as I get off of this call, um, especially the immune system one because I love that shit. Um, oh yeah, I but could use. That. Damn, like Taylor, this is gorgeous, and I love that there's just like a tab for Oprah sales, organic <laughs> tea accessory, Oprah. <laughs> just have to keep it up there yeah, yeah. oh yeah. all of it is so beautiful you were saying on um one of the podcasts that your whole idea behind it was that you want this box to come and people want to take out their phone and take a picture of it like you wanted it to be instagrammable that is the goal 100 i've always i was like you know if i'm gonna do something like this i have to do it I'm like, how do you enter in a space? And when I remember when I first told people, like, I always have a very supportive system of people around me. But I think I remember telling people I'm starting a tea company and they're like, okay, okay. But I knew that, like, enter, entering such an old industry, I wanted people to come to the website and feel like, oh, this is different. And, like, I knew what when the unboxing experience is super important because being a huge consumer, whenever I get a package at home, I'm so, like, I, I, I know what I makes me happy. I know what makes me want to, like, take a picture and send my friend. And I think from start to finish, what I've tried to create and craft is just an experience, which is different from just grabbing a box of tea at your local mm-hmm. grocery store. Yeah, it's something that you would want to, like, like, I'm envisioning, like, people have, like, tea carts or, like, drink carts. Like, you want it to be out. You don't just, like, hide that away in your closet. Like, the coasters, the teapot is freaking gorgeous. It's just even the packaging itself, like, it's just all beautiful. One of my questions is, like, when you start, are you, like, okay manufacturers like people that create this are you like there's always that line of like okay I'm new to this and I have to be maybe a bit more cheaper I have to be more reasonable about my costs because it can get really expensive or are you Mm -hmm. like no quality first like we'll just see how this flies but the quality needs to be there like if it's about look if it's about aesthetic like how do you even find someone who makes tea steepers like these things I'm like how would you find someone to make these things I don't understand (laughs) Google was my best friend through everything. I did not okay. go to business school, nor did I thrive in it. the one business class that I took. I definitely did not thrive. Business um, and media production? But I think I don't think anybody thrived in that class. Yeah. But 
<laughs> who was the, but the teacher was the prof was good he was so nice he was yeah so nice. he was good it was a good concept if we were older and like actually cared about business at that time i definitely would have now i wish it. i paid more attention because i probably got to save myself thousands <laughs> of hours of googling but yeah. um i think it just starts with like people always say like how do you start I'm like you just have to start like literally typing into google how to legally sell tea in canada like that was probably like my first google like and then sourcing and like figuring out different wholesalers you can work with and then but for me I knew that quality had to be like at the center of it because I'm like you only have one chance to make a first impression and if I'm going up against like titans like David's Tea and like people used to getting Tetley or Lipton in their grocery store like how am I going to come into a market like this and be like they're cool but we're better and I think it all comes down to packaging experience and quality and I think once we get inside of someone's home or on someone's Instagram that second sale is so easy and we see so many referrals and um, people just being like I got this as a gift and now I'm addicted and when you have the quality of the product there mixed with the quality of packaging it's like it's kind of like someone's treat to themselves like we like to find those creature comforts and the same way that people will invest in like $2,000 in like a beautiful espresso machine is the same thing for the tea culture. People really don't mind as much spending a little bit more if it makes them feel good. And I think we Mm -hmm. make people feel really excited to share our products and that's everything I've ever wanted. And I think that's like the key to our success. I'm buying the Lux Gold Starter Kit. I'm obsessed with this right now. This is incredible. I'm getting on this train right now, too. (laughs) Ooh, SEO is real good. Of course. SEO means your search engine optimization for the people in the back. This Honestly, it's gorgeous. I have lots of tea friends. Yeah, it's amazing. This is going to be gifts. This is Christmas done. Did you work with a marketing person? No, I've never worked with a marketing person. So um, I had a very, yeah, so I had a very clear idea of like, what I love logos. So it all kind of started with the logo. I love logos that the more you look at it is the more you see. Like I've always been so intrigued. By them. Oh my god, the U is a is a, it's, it's a, a cup. cup. Literally, you said that, and I was like, the past fifteen minutes of you talking about your company, I was staring at this, going like, cup of tea, the tea. Oh, it's a leaf. Yeah. Oh, it's a cup. Oh my god, this is fucking amazing yeah so the u is a cup and the e of uh, the accent is a leaf cup of tay and like it it sounds it plays off my name taylor so tay everyone calls yes. me tay yeah tay also plays off your podcast tay in a uh, t in spanish is spelled t-e because i knew i wanted to serve the u.s market as well and so their second language is spanish and so it literally says cup of tea incredible in, like in Spanglish and um yeah I just like really wanted so when I created like I used this website called Design Crowd and you create briefs of what you want and I was very specific to the point of being like crazy in my brief and I'm like the design <laughs> must include like hidden factors where people the more they see it the thing it has to exude luxury and so this after having a bunch of people submit I picked one guy to go off the website um, and I'm like, I like where you're starting, but it's not it yet. Let's work together to really like hone in on what's going on in my head that I can't physically draw out with my hand. 
And we went back and forth for weeks because I knew I'm like, I don't care if I spend a year working on this one thing, but it needs to really feel what I want it to feel like. Because I'm so sure of what feels right. And eventually we got it and um, lots of back and forth, my God. But um, That time that you got it and you were like, like that must have just been the ultimate moment. I was like, this is so real. I was like, because when you get your logo, right? I'm like, now I can put my logo on all of our accessories. I can start to like really brand out. I knew I wanted to stick to like black, white, silvers and gold and just everything that made. I wanted to feel like like the Chanel of tea. And I think that. Yeah, well, you did it. It totally is. Oh my God. The detail in this is I'm jealous and I kind of want to hire you. (laughs) Can you come do all the marketing for my company? Because that'd be nice. I'm very good at describing what needs to be executed. So if you ever need help. I love that. Very good at delegation. I would say that's my my strong suit too. Is All of us are strong at delegation. (laughs) Yeah. Uh-oh. Guys, this is what needs to be done. Uh, and I'm out. All right. Well, we could talk to you all day, Taylor. We could keep going on and on. We have so many things to ask you. We'll definitely want to have you on again, but we're at like two hours, so we probably shouldn't right now. Um, but I do want to ask before we sign off, do you have any advice for your 20-year-old self or for 20-year-olds today? If you were looking back and you could tell yourself something, what would you say? Um have way more fun than you than you think that you need because <laughs> until you post 25 it's a whole different beast like my I feel like an entirely different person from my early 20s than I am going into my late 20s and I think that you know the reality situation is that life does get more real so really enjoy yeah. the moments when you're younger and do have less responsibilities don't feel as much of a need to get out of your house soon if you don't have to if you're in a poor situation where like you know family life isn't great i totally understand but like save up your money because entering the housing market as is is difficult so if you can work and tolerate your parents and stay home long do it and um, also don't be afraid to pivot i've tried numerous things i've podcasted i thought i was going to be an entertainment reporter i um, I used to drop ship wine products before I had my business, which nobody knows about. Like I've done so many different things in order to find the thing that I really love with the understanding that in the next five years, I might have someone who takes over my business and I have other adventures and mm-hmm. motherhood and things like that. So don't be afraid to do something different. Don't be afraid to enter credit markets because there will always be a consumer and you can always find your way. And uh Live it up because, you know, 30 comes real hella quick. Real hella quick. And Whoa, freeze your eggs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> freeze your eggs if you can. Freeze your eggs. Uh, that's learn, awesome. At least learn about it. Yeah. Well, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Uh, like I said in the intro, you are 100% one of the most inspiring people I know. Like, Aww. I absolutely adore you. I think you're a great, an amazing human being. And if anybody wanted to get in contact with you for any reason, what would be the best way for them to do that? Um, probably on Instagram at Taylor LN, T-A-Y-L-O-R-L-N. Also just, if you email, like I answer all of the emails on my website right now. So if you email anything on cupofte.ca, um, you'll. <laughs> Taylor, you didn't respond to my text last night. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I should have contacted you. Contact over the email. Um, yeah, that's, that's about, about it. 
That's awesome. So also a friendly reminder that it is almost the Christmas season and Cup of Tay is a great place to shop for Christmas gifts. Like Mary said earlier, it's amazing. The quality of the products is incredible. We'll link that all in the show notes as well as all of the Instagram and the socials for that. Make sure to follow Taylor's podcast as well. Cup of tea. Cup of tea time with Tay. Tea time with Tay. <laughs> Too many teas and days. Yeah. And, uh, tea time with Tay. Uh, it's on Spotify, Apple Music, all of the things. Rate, review it. Do your thing. And of course, make sure to follow and subscribe and rate and review Talking 20 on your favorite podcast streaming platform to help us grow. Follow along with our shenanigans on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Talking 20 Podcast. And check out our new memes on Twitter at Talking 20. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>